Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on Tap, we have Split, starring James McAvoy, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Betty Buckley, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. And we'd like to welcome the listeners to episode two of Rye Smile Films, the film review podcast that is going to mix new, old, strange films with fine spirits. And today uh, we are drinking uh, Jefferson Reserve, is that correct? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And give a little cheers to to get this started. And uh, before we get into it today, uh, we'd like to thank our listeners, first of all, for uh listening to the first episode um we were, we were pretty pretty surprised by the amount of people that um sought it out listened to it so we're very thankful for that and we hope you continue to listen going forward shout out to canada and ireland right exactly yeah yeah um before we um get started we came up with a new theming mechanism for this week and i'm going to hand it off to matt so he can explain what that is so if you listen to the first podcast what you understood or came hopefully you understood is that we were going to base this a series of reviews based on themes. And we decided sort of in keeping in line with the thought of bourbon that we'd call each of those themes a cask. So this cask in particular, we've titled East Rail 177. And we've already had the first entry into that with Unbreakable and the first choice of the booze to go with it, I guess. And so this is step two in the first cask, which will be split, uh, appropriately given some Jefferson's Reserve and the ties to Philadelphia, right? Mm -hmm. So Founding Father about a movie set in Philadelphia. Uh, And we'll kind of go forward with that idea. This idea of the cask is what houses the theme and inside of those probably three entries. We may stray from that a little bit, but right now the themed approach would be three. And frankly, we already have the next two casks already lined up and I think there's some good stuff going in there. Now, I understand the cask is based around something that is contemporary, but also with a look at what preceded it, whether it be genre or whether it be uh, previous um, prequels or since sequels. Yeah, and I think there might be some tasty elements in the cast. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and also maybe some sour notes as well. I think we'll, we'll get into those. Well said. But uh, before we get into uh, the happy hour for today, which is Split from 2017, um, I'm going to propose uh, the flight question for today, which is... And I asked you a couple days ago, Matt, uh, if there was, you know, being that we're, you know, splits a, a quiet sequel to Unbreakable, and then we have the, uh, the the new the new Glass film coming up, kind of thinking about sequels and you know the waiting for them and or possibly the disappointment of them. So if there's one sequel in all of film history that you could just erase from existence, whether it was just so bad, unwatchable, not the sequel we deserved, um, what would that sequel be? Okay, so disclaimer here, we have automatically removed Rocky V because that sort of is the first on everybody's list and we're especially tied with the Philadelphia theme today. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to pick that low-hanging fruit. So I'm going to pick one that actually isn't the worst sequel in the franchise, but I think destroyed what had a lot of possibility. So I'm going to tell you there's worse than this, but I'm going to tell you that this absolutely missed the mark. Okay, ready? It's The Hangover 2. The fact that that story was the story that it was, and it wasn't the story of Ed Helms and the divorce from his horrible wife, Mm -hmm. 
And then the divorce party that ensued in Las Vegas, which brings back Heather Graham and mm-hmm. God bless Heather Graham, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> that to me was a tragic mistake. And then, because everyone could easily say, well, the third film is worse. And mm-hmm. I actually wouldn't disagree with yeah, that. It probably is. Oh, for sure it is. Yeah. But the problem is that there was gold that mm-hmm. was found in the first hangover. Mm-hmm. And you can start to see it fray mm-hmm. in the second one. There's no reason that that takes place abroad. Mm-hmm. And the way that it did mm-hmm. with the character that we don't care about when they had something so obviously set up to just slay and missed. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so that being said, like yeah. here's some other possibilities, right? Hangover 2. Yeah. There's multiple entries in Paranormal Activity. We could go. But I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go yeah. with the Hangover Part 2 yeah. just because. And who am I? Like, I'm not Bender Spink. Exactly. But that story was so set up and put on a tee. That was mm-hmm. a slam dunk. And yep. they rim rocked themselves in the process of trying to throw that baby down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, it, the biggest crime, I think, with that film, too, is it's almost like a shot-for-shot shot rehash of the first film all over again. Um, kind of like Die Hard 2. Like, how could the same thing happen to the same guys twice? Except in Asia with a monkey. Exactly, yeah. And um, I would argue that the first Hangover might be the finest comedy uh, from 2000 to 2009. Like, It's a good period. It's a it? great period yeah. for that adult raunchy comedy. And that one like hits all the boxes in a, in a really good way. And just a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... Yeah, so high concept. That is a disappointing sequel. Um, but you're right. It's I, the third one's probably even worse. But at that point, you're like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. okay. So um, um, I'm gonna have to go with and kind of a bit of little backstory ahead. I am a huge fan, huge fan. They might be in my top ten movies of all time. The first Alien and Aliens, James Cameron's sequel. On Jesse's top shelf of all great time, greatest films of all time, yes. this is the number one position. I, lo- I, I love them. Yes, and so the I tried to pick a sequel that came into existence and essentially threw the whole train off the rails for everything going forward. And that sequel's Alien 3, directed by David Fincher, 1992, I believe. And again, the big problem was Aliens kind of alley-ooped the sequel for this movie with the continuation of Ripley and Newt, Corporal Hicks and Bishop, and they kill three of those characters on the crash landing of that film on some prison planet. Now there is some good stuff in Alien 3, you know, this this they're back to a singular alien that metamorphosizes in a dog, so it has the traits of a four-legged beast versus the bipedal alien from the from the first two. But the amount of studio interference on this story is just astronomical, and you can tell that there's a bunch of hands in the in the making of this, to the point where Fincher even went on record saying he was surprised he even made another movie after this. It almost ended Hollywood for him. And huh. it's so it's so it's just not the sequel we deserved. And from that point, the Alien franchise took such a weird turn with Alien Resurrection, the eventual crossover into the Predator franchise. And then the trying to bring back the prequel with Prometheus and Alien Covenant, where I don't think this series has course corrected since 1992. Yeah, no. I think sometimes in film you make decisions that are irrecoverable. Mm-hmm. Number one, because you lose the audience. Mm-hmm. And number two, mm-hmm. because you have painted yourself into such a corner, short of time travel, there's no way out. Mm-hmm. Um, cloning Ripley is a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Um and we could go on and on from there. Exactly. And, you know, it, like, I think the legacy of that series is, you know, it's two for 
two for four. That's a losing. That's a losing record. I didn't even count the spinoffs because both of those are atrocious. But you know, it's a legacy defined by two really great entries and one of the better sequels ever made. Just followed up by by drivel, just kind of unwatchable trash. And I kind of hope. I I, I kind of. It's it's a series too that I think needs to take a nap for a long time and I, i'd be perfectly okay if i never saw another alien movie made in my lifetime like i'll just say that you mean you don't like the idea of the birth of aliens having something to do with humans destroying no, jesus don't even don't even talk about you're not that. okay with no that? don't even talk about it. don't even bring it up now. Some pretty brainy stuff man. <laughs> oh no way <laughs> All right, really scott needs to stop making movies too by the way like okay so some pretty nice entries we're gonna follow that up with the nightcap later with more talk about about some sequels but um, let's get right into the happy hour today, which would be split from 2017, and I will start that with a brief synopsis. Cassie Cook is a bit of an antisocial teenager who finds herself at a birthday party she probably wouldn't want to be at, invited by friends Claire and, and Marsha, who probably didn't want to invite her in the first place. Uh, birthday party will look like at a Panera Bread. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it does actually. But on their on their on their way home, yeah. they are abducted by Kevin Wendell Crumb. Now, Kevin Wendell Crumb is an individual who suffers from dissociative identity disorder (DID), commonly known before that as multiple personality disorder. Now, Kevin's seeking treatment from a psychiatrist, Dr. Karen Fletcher who has identified at least 23 uh, personalities living with inside Kevin. And um, they're all fighting for control of what uh, he calls the light. So they are all kind of aiming for the spotlight. And uh, Kevin uh, locks them up in a bit of a a basement-type scenario, keeping them captive for the inevitable uh, arrival of an unseen 24th personality known as the Beast. Now, between all this, we learn a little bit more about Kevin Wendell Crumb and his upbringing, about how dad uh, left on a train one day, never returned, and how he was essentially abused um, as a child by his obsessive compulsive uh, mother. And this is an interesting parallel because it ties directly into Casey's upbringing, which is also another abusive relationship told through flashback of how she was sexually uh, molested by her uncle. Uncle. So throughout the film, we meet multiple personalities from Kevin, including Barry, Dennis, Patricia, and um, my my favorite in particular, Hedwig. Hedwig. Yes. So Hedwig's a, a nine-year-old uh, boy living inside the body of Kevin Wendell Crumb, James McAvoy, and uh, Cassie tries to use this to her advantage to um, have the nine-year-old brain to find a way to escape, whether that be through some unseen passage or just trying to find a clue to where they're located. And this almost isn't done in through her attempts in a courting process a little bit, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like almost like trying to like, you like, you like, I'll give you a kiss and Uh show me your room and Uh yeah, trying to outsmart the nine-year-old version because she has an upper hand on that. And through this time, uh, uh, Dr. Karen Fletcher played by betty buckley which <laughs> betty buckley i was like who is this person where have i seen her she's the crazy woman in the happening who was smashing her face and all the windows and and if you remember that or you just blocked that from your memory uh, no i remember that but a decent career in broadway too from betty buckley upon mm. some research i did with her but anyway uh-huh. yeah keep going right yeah. but, but a, um a familiar character on the shemylan 
or Shemalon. I'm not really. What? Sh- Shyamalan? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. Shemalan. <laughs> just kidding. Um, you know, he does tend to use some of the actors that he likes over and over again. Mm-hmm. So here we go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's trying, I don't know, she's trying to like make some appeal to some uh, like audience that like people out there have special abilities. And she's trying to use Kevin as this prime example of all these personalities living within within him. And she eventually hones in on to like where he's located which so happens to be like underneath the philadelphia zoo right which is very fitting for the way the story uh changes caged animals to to speak of but uh she finds out that there's girls being held captive here and she then therefore is drugged and held captive as well and eventually killed by the unveiling of the 24th personality known as the beast which is um the way he transforms into the beast is almost at the 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 last place where dad would have been the train station exactly mm-hmm. which is definitely revealed later in the film mm-hmm. what the tie is to that and what what struck me about that particular moment mm-hmm. is his father kevin Wendell Crumb's father seemingly dies on this train and then before the beast uh, unveils itself for the audience mm-hmm. we see kind of a ritualistic Morning, if you will, almost right. Mm-hmm. Um, I flowers. believe, yeah, Patricia and Barry, essentially the two personalities mm-hmm. that, other than Hedwig, dominate the the film. Go to the train mm-hmm. station, buy some flowers, lay them at the entrance to the train car, mm-hmm. and then we see a quick uh, sequence on the train, and then the beast literally emerging out of the train. Yes, which is going to get to what we talk about at the end. And is here's the thing. Mm-hmm. How good he can be when he gets it right and he's being subtle. Exactly. Uh, and more more on that here in a second. Exactly. So this leads to the last third of the movie, which is essentially a showdown between Casey and the Beast and all the emerging personalities trying to come into the light. And almost like Beetlejuice, um, by saying his name three times, Kevin Wendell Crumb, Kevin Wendell Crumb, Kent Kevin Wendell Crumb, she's able to bring the real version to the forefront. Right. But... The Beast emerges yet again, and the Beast's ultimate goal is to, you know, eliminate uh, the, the, the impure. The impure. And she, Cassie's backed into a corner, and by this time, she's shed most of her clothing to reveal, you know, we got to talk about the color theming again, this green tank top, like green being the hero color again. And she has all these scars and burns all over her body from years of abuse by this asshole uncle. And he sees this and it clicks for him. He says, you are, uh, you, you, you are impure. You have been touched before. And like, he's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, you're, you're not part of my, of my grand plan. Those who have not been torn have no value in themselves and no place in this world. Mm-hmm. Rejoice mm-hmm. the broken are the more evolved rejoice yeah, and a nice performance there by matt i love it yes, <laughs> and and uh yeah so then he kind of scampers off into the night cassie's then uh, rescued by some uh, zoo zoo attendants who then bring the authorities and in a very poignant moment she's sitting in the back of a police car saying uh your uncle's here and without a word you know she kind of makes uh, a, a, a look to the female police officer saying like I'm not going with him. Right. I think this event has been so traumatic enough and has made her realize that I'm not going to be the victim anymore. And 
kind of stands up for herself, which is, is a very powerful moment done with no, di- again, talking about the brilliance of Unbreakable, minimal dialogue to get heavy themes across. This movie does it the same way. And that then leads, therefore, to the twist ending, which I would argue, and I had to think about this for a while, you know, Shyamalan's, you know, shtick in most of his movies, uh, at least the ones I have seen, is the twist ending. Yeah. I've been shyamalan <laughs> I mentioned that last week. His greatest blessing and his most severe curse. Exactly. Yeah, so aptly said. This one, you know, being such fans of Umbra- this might be his finest twist. Okay. Um, I think it trumps the one in Unbreakable, just because if you have no idea what you're walking into, it comes so out of left field, but it fits so well into the story that you just watched. Did you like it better than the ending of The Sixth Sense? I think so. And I, just because I think The Sixth Sense ending has been parodied so much, and, and that's a very clever ending, and, and the way it all all comes to fruition. I think this this one's just so unexpected, yet so satisfying, and kind of raises the stakes for this movie without you know without you realizing that uh, to begin with. So I want to take it back to the beginning. Well, hold on. Go ahead. Let him in on the. Let, let's just go ahead and let the cat out of the bag now. Let's give him the ending, and then I want to talk about, um, you know, one of the things that I purposely go out of my way to pay attention to, which is audience reaction. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. You're doing such a good job telling the story. Finish it up. Okay. So the film wraps up with uh, Kevin Wendell Crumb kind of in some little like abandoned apartment, staring into in a mirror and kind of having a banter between Hedwig, Patricia, Dennis, and Dennis. Yeah. And all kind of coming to the realization that we will show the world what the beast is capable of, and he will protect us. Protect us, right? Mm-hmm. So then it cuts to cuts to black, cuts to the title, split. All right, oh, the movie's over, and then it opens up on a diner of this news report of the 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 news story of the the kidnapped girls and um, how how some people have died. Uh, unbeknownst to where the assailant is and the news has already come up with a nickname from him they're calling him the, the horde, horde. Mm-hmm. right so this piques the interest of some of the diner goers and they're like hey this kind of sounds familiar like that case that uh, a few years ago about the guy in the wheelchair and he had a funny, funny name, name too. too and the, the the camera pans in such a brilliant way where it doesn't reveal bruce willis sitting at the end of the counter until it's his time to talk and he says mr glass and then he just kind of, kind of like, kind of looks around, and then kind of like looks off into the distance, and then it cuts to black, kind of with like with one word of dialogue, saying that this film takes place in the same universe that Unbreakable set up yep. seventeen years ago. Yep. And at this time, uh, James Newton Howard's theme of uh, uh, the title track "Visions" when he was in the train station t- yeah. touching everybody. From Unbreakable. Uh, from Unbreakable is is playing over this. So by now it's like it's just like it's just like those are all the clues like getting you to this. So if you've seen Unbreakable, you're gonna know like, oh wow, this is a clever thing. If you haven't seen Unbreakable, this is gonna be so confusing to you. Okay, so to that, right? We're going through the movie and I'm I'm pretty happy with it. Right, and I just think it's kind of this sort of smarter horror film with a terrific performance by James McAvoy, which we'll get into in just a minute, I'm sure. And we get to that sequence that you talked about where he's talking to all of the different versions of himself in the mirror. And there's a very slow rollout in the introductory part of Visions. And about the time it moves to the first semi-crescendo in that musical sequence, I kind of clicked on something sounding familiar. And I wasn't quite... And listen, honestly, I've seen Unbreakable 
65 to 85 times yeah. a lot you're being flashed back to 2000 right and the rustling in the seats <laughs> and, it, and it clicked yeah. right and i looked at my wife who i was at the film with and i said no way and she's like what no way and about that time we're out to the sequence that you said which is over black split coming mm-hmm. in real sharp and there's something i want to talk to you about that as well yeah and then we get that and the music's full on and i'm thinking man this is interesting mm-hmm. and then the Bruce Willis bit happens and I realize the whole time I've been watching Unbreakable 2 mm-hmm. and I look around and the theater is filled with fairly young people horror mm-hmm. Friday night yeah that probably weren't even born or barely born or certainly not capable of seeing a movie like Unbreakable at or, the age of six or under or seeking it out in the time span they have no idea what's going on exactly and like this is not an exaggeration Mm -hmm. the hair is standing up on my arms Mm -hmm. because something that for me had been 20 uh, 17 years i guess at that Mm -hmm. point waiting just occurred Mm -hmm. and delivered with all of the deft precision of a surgeon's scalpel that when he's right Mm -hmm. he being mns Mm -hmm. he's able to do Mm -hmm. And I'm looking around, and I want to stand up and shout, "It's unbreakable!" Of course, they would. I would not do that. <laughs> they the would still be like, "What are you talking about?" Exactly. <laughs> and immediately, I'm on the horn with you, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I just because I, I and I know you haven't seen it yet. Mm-hmm. That was one of the more monumental twists mm-hmm. in my life. But mm-hmm. here's my question: Yep. Do you think the people that were not familiar with Unbreakable gave a damn about? An actor who's way past his prime, God bless Bruce Willis too, mm-hmm. but not A-lister anymore. Not really. Yeah. Because the people that I've spoken to about that said, huh, that's kind of interesting. And most of them didn't pursue what that meant. Mm-hmm. Maybe it meant something going forward. Yeah. Maybe it didn't. Eh. And a lot of the reviews, Jesse, mm-hmm. were, yeah, there's a throwaway bit at the end of that film that maybe ties this back to the Unbreakable Universe. And in fact, there was nothing throwaway maybe about that. Mm-hmm. It was slam dunk as we get back to our basketball theme. Yeah, go, it's, it's go Sixers, right? Yeah, it's, it's the setup. It's the alley-oop that we then hope that glass slams home. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Off the glass. Yeah. Right? This yeah. is Embiid bringing it home. Exactly. Dunking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. On Jimmy Butler. Yep. And there's nothing throwaway about that. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely unbreakable too. So immediately it's to, you know, the internet. Exactly. And he's said, yeah, this is happening. Mm-hmm. And about a week later, we get the title. Exactly. The next movie's going to be called Glass. It's perfect. And, you know, kind of talking about that ending. So there was, you know, a bit of some like behind the scenes magic that had to take place because, as we talked about last week, Disney Touchstone owns Unbreakable. This film was made by Blumhouse. Uh, Universal and Blumhouse. Right. So they didn't have ties to the David Dunn character. So he had to go to Disney and bargain with the, the, the president saying, I want to do this in the ending. I need the rights to the David Dunn character wow. for this little bit, which wasn't so shown in any pre-screenings. It uh, wasn't given. It was it was day one at the theaters. was the first time people got to see it. So they made a deal saying, okay, you can use the character, but if you do make a third, we want to have... We want to be a part of that with in whatever capacity we can, and we won't we won't pay or charge you anything to use this character. So I thought that yeah, that that was pretty interesting. Interesting, yeah. Well, let's let's take it back to the beginning. I'm sure, and we're gonna we're gonna come right back to that end. Um, 
you know, the beginning, just right off the bat, you know, you have this abduction scene in the parking lot and then to a very intricate credit sequence and it's filmed so beautifully and the cinematography is incredible in this film. The use of color, it's so vibrant and so I'm wondering, like, while I'm watching this, I was like, who abducted M. Night Shyamalan as well and who's directing this movie? Because this is like, it's like, it's done so effortlessly and it's like not schlocky and it's 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 shot so beautifully again i'm like who abducted him who's who's ghost directing this film right now right so right you know um Shyamalan's really good and this is the second film of his that i've noticed it in is his use of the flashback now the other film that it was used very well in was Signs. Now in that in that film, it flashes back routinely, giving little pieces until the very end when you get the whole thing, which is Mel Gibson's wife is pinned uh, to this uh, truck, uh, and she's not going to live, and these are the last moments they're going to have to speak to each other. And we get that about three or four times throughout the film, and then at the end we get the the payoff. This film does it again very brilliantly with the introduction of young Cassie her father and her uncle who are about to partake in a hunting trip and they're at breakfast and immediately from the get-go like as soon as the uncle starts talking and the way he talks to cassie the cringe factor hits an 11 and you know that something's not right with this relationship here and in every subsequent uh, flashback scene you get a little more piece to the puzzle which just escalates to just cringe inducing like awfulness the diner scene that's young cassie her father and her uncle is the uncle telling a story about this very large buck that he's found and it kind of is from the realm of the one that got away from the annals of great fishing stories right this buck comes across the river and it's got a rack this and that and the dad kind of begins gently teasing him that he has buck fever and then Cassie kind of chimes in because he's got buck, fe- buck fever. Mm-hmm. And if you think about that, buck fever seems to be alluding to the pursuit of a mate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like from the animal perspective, buck fever. It's a thing. Mm-hmm. And in this case, being laid at the uncle's feet is setting you up with what you said of that cringeworthy, oh man. And I think that's one of the things that throughout this film is done really, really well. Mm-hmm. It exists on this bed of tension that doesn't let you off the hook, but yet doesn't cram it down your throat either. Yeah, it's a, a delicate balance of you know hammering in a theme and not um, having it like spoon-fed to you. A definite um, trick to pull off, mm-hmm. but also shows the influence. Like two of the people that you know MNS talks about a lot that were early influenced are Nicholas Ray mm-hmm. and Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. So I think. If you look at the Hitchcock angle on that and the idea of thriller and this belief that the best way to put the audience in suspense is to give them a little bit more information than the characters on the screen have Mm -hmm. because you can't communicate with them. Mm -hmm. I can't say there's a bomb under the table. Exactly. They're having this nice dinner. You know it's ticking and Mm -hmm. no one can tell them. Okay, Mm -hmm. so and and to further that a little bit with that opening sequence, I'm always reminded of Psycho. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is Psycho's introduction is sharp sharp string string music Mm -hmm. with this really uncomfortable um linear downward trajectory of lines that show the credits it's nothing comfortable (laughs) there's nothing comfortable in that at all and this exactly (laughs) right lines just linear Mm -hmm. which is a strange strange way to go about it Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. probably not as good as vertigo to me but also Mm -hmm. uncomfortable Mm -hmm. 
And this movie is sort of similar. Like we go from the opening sequence to boom, cut to black, split, hard music, back. She's on like a gurney being hauled through the bottom. Yep. She being Cassie and the yep. other ones too, but mostly from Cassie's POV mm-hmm. through the bottom of what's the, the zoo. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, in the first 10 minutes of that movie, we have uh, teen angst and jealousy. Mm-hmm. We have, I think, the death of Cassie's father, mm-hmm. abduction, um, confiscation, and attempted rape. Mm-hmm. And we're like 15 minutes in. Not even. I think it's 10 minutes. It's, yeah. It's 10 minutes. It's it's just loaded like from the get-go. And we're moving, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So back to these flashback scenes okay. to kind of parallel with Unbreakable. I mean, we get, we get they're peppered throughout the film very, very intricately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we get to one where she's just been molested by her uncle. Right. And he's coming back up the hill and she's got the shotgun pointed at him. Very willing to pull it, knowing that, like, what just happened wasn't right. And I'm going to pull this thing. Yeah. Very mirroring and parallel of what Joseph did in Unbreakable. Yep. Having the gun on on, on, on on dad saying this this won't and then kind of trying to talk them talk them down on it. Kind of in a very similar, you know, paralleled fashion. But then, um, you know, so then we're, we're, we're in there. We're in this, you know, captive state in this basement. And this is the other thing I want to talk about, too. You know, I, I, re- I recently reviewed Split to prepare for this. Yeah. And, you know, I noticed a lot more things, you know, uh, that, you know, Shyamalan tricks that he's used in other movies. Uh, not just this flashback. So the other is this use of the basement. So, yeah, I don't know... Um, in all of his films, most of them that I've seen, so so split, the Sixth Sense, uh, Unbreakable, Signs in the Village, have a very prominent yep. basement presence. Yep. In the Sixth Sense, it's where Malcolm Crow does his work, and the wife keeps trying to lock it up. Yep. And he's like, "Why is she doing this?" And it's because he's not there. He's not there. Uh, Unbreakable, it's the the the, the weightlifting bit. In Signs, it's where they're being held captive from the aliens, and the sun almost goes into asthma an asthma attack and then the village is where they hide from the supposed monster creatures yeah right so it's almost like it's you know they're hiding away from you know the 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 tension and the themes that are barrowing down on top of them and to take that one step further and Mm -hmm. i love where you're at with that Mm -hmm. when you take those that same basement or below the surface um perspective in unbreakable and in split you can make the case that that's where the true revelation of each of the heroes being reborn is first seen. Mm-hmm. The weightlifting scene in Unbreakable happens in the basement. And for the first time, David Dunn pushes the limits to a weight that he's never pushed before. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's something to what my son's theory is. In a sense, a rebirth, right? Mm-hmm. Below the surface. Which obviously to me is a reference to the soul, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Which is very, very... Um, thematically done with all of his work Mm -hmm. right okay so then let's take it with with split Mm -hmm. most of the film cassie is angling and trying but she never really stands up for herself short of like kind of punching hedwig which Mm -hmm. is a little boy but standing up for herself to an adult underground Mm -hmm. right so like the the parallels between what happens below the surface in both those and how the hero is created through that Mm -hmm undeniable mm-hmm. and so again when he's right so smartly done exactly and like you know you brought up the comparisons to hitchcock that was again his other curse right out of the gate with the sixth sense 
M. Night Shyamalan is the next Alfred Hitchcock. Oh like, like, don't even call me that because I can't live up to those expectations. Well, now we're getting back to that Orson Welles deal, right? Exactly. So, like, you're, the brilliance of when Hitchcock was on, there's no better director in film history. Right. And when Shyamalan's on, like, like with these subtle hints of thematic layering, he's brilliant. When And then when he's doing the same thing but he's not on, it's atrocious. Atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. But then we come to Kevin Winlow Crum and it's the same thing. You know, he's trying to bury all these 23 personalities, down, yep. bury them down because the one coming up is number 24, the Beast. Well, and think about this too, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Into the Light. Yeah. Which would be above the dank, dark basement. Exactly. And also a reference again to God. Mm-hmm. Like that's a thing that he uses time and time and time again in his films. Mm-hmm. And doesn't hand and I think handled really well, mm-hmm. but like to the light, out of the basement, an ascension into the light. Mm-hmm. It's so so smart, so good. Yeah. So with that, let's talk a little bit about Kevin Wendell Crumb okay. and uh, James McAvoy. Which this is his vehicle. This is a brilliant performance, like un- unbelievable the way he switches back and forth between Patricia and Hedwig and Dennis and Barry and the Beast. It's it's brilliant. It's so good. And we talked about uh, the, the the other week. Um, we're like, who, who else was nominated for Best Actor that the year that came out? Because like, how he didn't get at least a nomination or at least a, like you know you throw a bone my way yeah. is a crime, like an absolute crime. And maybe it's just because the Academy doesn't like genre pieces like this, but. It's a shame. It's a damn shame. Well, this the Academy doesn't like genre pieces when it doesn't suit whatever genre they think is important that week. Exactly. But but horror's that, never been like no, never. It's a miracle. Something like Silence of the Lambs won the Big Five, but yeah, it's horror's like bottom of the barrel to them. Right. Like throwaway. Kind exactly. Of film. And the thing about the acting performance, and again, um, we've seen multiple personality performances before. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I think McAvoy does really well is if you don't hear the voice that goes with the character, you can tell who the character is by the physical manifestation of his mm-hmm. performance yep. on the screen. Mm-hmm. It's really remarkable to watch. Mm-hmm. This is going to sound crazy, but hear me out. Yeah, The control that this man has over the vascularity in his forehead. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make this vein pop out to show you I'm going through a transformation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And handled... Mm-hmm. Like an absolute pro, because let's be honest, mm-hmm. this is also Victor Frank- Frankenstein. Yep. Like, thank God mm-hmm. that the world got to see the brilliance of James McAvoy, because mm-hmm. it's on full display in this film. You know who was originally supposed to play this character? Do I want to know this? It was originally, it was, and then, then I think it fell through, and so then McAvoy, he was available. Joaquin Phoenix, which, eh, okay, but okay. like, I'm, I'm with you. I'm glad we got to see him you know exhibit all these personalities and even more so um in glass i think it's it's we get up to 20 different personalities in that in that maybe film. it's because when this was being shot joaquin phoenix was off doing the other real multiple personality and that i'm not here oh, weird things or whatever Lord. he was in. yeah let's, let's avoid that one things that sometimes work out for the right reasons mm-hmm. yeah but we briefly talked about it last week in and the unbreakable uh review but Kevin Wendell Crumb was originally a part of the original Unbreakable script. Yeah. He was like another component in an already loaded story. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned, he was supposed to be the orange man, yeah. which they were going to make all that fit. Thank God he, he cut that part out. Right. But um, so he had written the character years ago and had always kind of gone back to it. And um, it kept getting pushed aside. And I think he like finally realized 
you know, this is kind of the, uh, you know, the kind of the status of horror we're in right now. When he partnered with Bloomhouse to do the visit, I think that was like the best move Shyamalan could have made career-wise because, you know, Bloomhouse had done Paranormal Activity. And, horror Gold. Horror Gold. Yeah. Sinister. Like any number of like films that you've seen horror-wise in Insidious the last decade. Too, right? Yes. Yeah. Conjuring? Yeah. No, no, not Conjuring. Okay. Um, he's This man is produced. So he knows his way around horror and I think he was able to bring out those best elements in Shyamalan again. Uh, so I thought I think that was a great partnership and then okay so this is and I think Shyamalan's gone on record to confirm this as well so there's a scene in Unbreakable you have to go back to Unbreakable where um, you know Willis is at uh, uh, the football stadium yeah. doing doing his job and he's just kind of standing there and this mother and her son bump into him and it's you hear like the son almost crying out and they don't address it anymore he just kind of like looks at it and then like proceeds on his way yep. Shyamalan's gone on record saying this was Kevin Wendell Crumb and his mother like kind of shown like before yep. which is you know that's a nice bit of foreshadowing like um, to, to, to kind of go along with that but um, being able to see all these different personalities kind of you know you know make their way through and you know he's so committed to the role that in one of the sequences he um towards the end he was like so like enraged with the beast's rage that he punched a wall and i don't know if you don't know if you'd noticed this but in the scene where and he broke his hand and in the scene where he's buying flowers from the train station like his hand goes up to like adjust his glasses his hand is swollen like a balloon like wow. absolutely swollen that. So then, like he had to deal with the broken hand the rest of the shoot, and then it, did you? And then an atomic blonde. Yeah, yeah. It's bandaged. Yep. It's, it's from. Right, I was just gonna say, is that why it's bandaged it's in from, atomic from blonde? this film? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So, if you want to see this movie, you know, just on you know for a performance alone, you won't be disappointed, like in the slightest. I don't think you'll be disappointed at all. the The thing that is also interesting about this film to me is I think what the trailer sets up is essential to what the viewer expects and a lot of times the plus or minus on their reviews. That movie is presented as a horror film and when you get to the end of that movie, I don't think you're left with this, boy, that was a really terrifying movie despite the fact that here are the horror tenants that are in it. Mm -hmm. Multiple personalities, the consumption of humans, Mm -hmm. abduction of children, perversion of the innocent, Body dysmorphia. Body dysmorphia. Yeah. And the the creepy, like the creepy kid, right? Like if I was going to tell you all of those things are in this movie mm-hmm. and there's not a single solitary jump scare, you might tell me that sounds like a really bad horror movie. And then I would probably respond in this case with this film. Yeah. What if it's not a horror movie? Mm-hmm. What if it's just a thriller? Yep. And I think again... When I compare, and the comparisons between Split and Unbreakable post-final scene in Split, you just can't get away from. So I'm not even going to pretend like I can't. Okay, we're going to go ahead and stay in that space and I'm fine there. Mm -hmm. As bad as the trailer was for Unbreakable, Mm -hmm. that seemed like this is a survivor guilt story about this train wreck and this weird guy that somehow is morose and sullen and whatever. Yeah. But it's actually a superhero movie. Mm Mm-hmm is the same like and that that was a failure that that didn't work in that film mm-hmm. this movie works because i think the horror and then you put the name blumhouse on it mm-hmm. the horror that you expect is psychological 
and slow burnish after about the 10 minutes it kind of like that part we talked about it slows down a little bit and becomes a bit of more of a character study mm. and you get a psychological horror wrapped inside i'm sorry a psychological thriller wrapped inside a horror mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. here we go is the creation of another key component mm-hmm. in a superhero trilogy mm-hmm. and that might be messy and that sounds like a disaster mm-hmm. And he handles it with but on the, the sc- deft grace of a professional, yeah. right? But on the screen, it all comes together all, so nicely. All comes together. And then you talked about Unbreakable being a failure. This film was the exact opposite. Why don't like, you go ahead and lay the numbers on him? Okay, so last week we talked about the budget for Unbreakable being $75 million, which, what the hell? <laughs> like, okay, so $75 million, didn't even win the weekend. Didn't even win the Opened weekend. Opened at 30 Yes. Right? And by the time, like, I think recently I just looked on um, boxofficemojo.com. Mm-hmm. And the the domestic revenue had hit ninety, mm-hmm. or maybe no ninety five. Mm-hmm. So twenty years later, it had made twenty million dollars. Mm-hmm. And again, like as I continue to scratch my head, but okay, exactly. So then you double down the budget, or like like minus the budget for this one to nine million. Yep, uh, wins the weekend with like 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 forty million worldwide gross of two hundred and seventy eight. Like, whoo man! Like it's over a two thousand percent increase on ROI, return on investment. To make it the most profitable film money wise right. in all of twenty seventeen. Exactly. So um yeah, like it, it's it's amazing. And you can do that in horror. Like, you sure. know, you you add up the multipliers for like paranormal activity, blood witch project, like the amount of money they made on those on minuscule budget, Halloween, nineteen seventy eight, is it's unbelievable what you well, can do in this genre when you have so little money to play with. Well to that, exactly, mm-hmm. and I'm sure someone will probably check me on this if I'm not right, but mm-hmm. at one time, yeah. Paranormal activity the franchise Mm -hmm. was the highest roi per franchise and entries of ready for this of any any film franchise i believe that that had ever been done when they make the first one well i don't want to get into paranormal activity maybe that's another cask for another day (laughs) yeah but you're right Mm -hmm. and you know why that is you know why that is Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the horror fangoer Mm -hmm. is the most loyal fangoer of all genre-based films and all of cinema, yeah, look at the by two, a mile. Look at the two of us. I mean, we seek these films out yearly. Yep. Disappointed by some, I think blown away by some others. Right. Mm-hmm. And despite the, and and oftentimes more disappointed than blown away, mm-hmm. with the excuse like, "Well, they'll hit the next one." Exactly. It is swing for the downs on every pitch, mm-hmm. and most of the time it's grab some pine because you just stroke out. <laughs> but occasionally, <laughs> occasionally somebody connects, mm-hmm. and you know. Matt Stairs, Jonathan Broxton's a pitch over the center field wall that I still don't think has landed. Exactly. Back to the Philadelphia theme of the Phillies. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, you t- you mentioned the comparisons to Unbreakable. Like, it was almost, you know, Shyamalan was like just setting this film up and then like careful to go back and seeing, well, what can I pepper in this movie to like, yeah. without people really knowing. So, you know, in The Beast, The Beast is described as this long-maned uh, uh, hair villain with long fingers. Yeah. And, and he's not that. He doesn't become... He's just described as that. Right. And in the, his drawings that Hedwig's done, is that's what it looks like. It does. So, if you take it back to the... the right, which is... But it's another core tenant of horror, ex- right? Exactly. The kid who draws the creepy pictures. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he almost looks like the Mothman, like the Mothman prophecies. Every horror movie that has a kid has the little kid who's drawn, here's me... Here's mommy and daddy with their heads cut off, and here's this demon on the other end in some shoddily pinned crayon miasma. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's, 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 it has to be crayon. That's a rule. Yeah. 
Um, but if you take it back to the end scene of Unbreakable with uh, Mrs. Price, uh, she's talking to David Dunn about, look how the features on the villain are exaggerated. Look how the long-maned uh, villain with the long... She describes the beast in that little scene before we ever got to see see, see that. Which so. is the exact same line mm-hmm. delivered differently mm-hmm. that Elijah Price gives in Unbreakable mm-hmm. when he's explaining mm-hmm. the art in that shopper at limited edition who's buying the picture for his infant named Jeb. Yeah. <laughs> same thing. Notice the misshapen yeah. head. It's the same thing. Yeah. And again, we're talking back to the basketball. It's that setup to what we hope we see in Glass being that it's described as the soldier villain. Right. Which is what McAvoy's The Beast is gonna become to the letter yeah exactly the brawny opposition the brawny opposition so mm-hmm. you know you know you know it, it reaches that stage where you know the beast emerges he kills the doctor he eats the other two <laughs> the other two girls like that were held captive and they're all valiantly trying to like find a way to escape and you know there's a part of me that like you know the if there's anything that really doesn't work in this film it's the, the it's the shtick with the doctor and you know the back and forth um not a betty know, buckley fan i guess not you don't but, like the Golden Girls either? Or what? <laughs> Probably not. But if that stuff's not in the movie and they keep it single location in this basement, I think it's still a home run. And uh, I think that's because it, it's, it's, it's this tight thriller. I think, you know, you know, when Shyamalan's really good about, you know, using minimal locations, but then going outside of that, like in Signs, like when they're on the farm in Signs, like that movie works. Oh, yeah. You know, when they go into town eventually, and then it kind of like, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little lame. But, um... And, and the same kind of applies here. You know, when they're when they're in 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 the Kevin Wendell's you know subterranean uh, zoo basement, film works, and you get to see all these personalities emerge, and then even the the discovery on the computer screen of of all all, all two more Jade and Orwell, right? Yeah, Jade and Orwell, and then the files on all, on all on all the rest, and then yeah, it it's so peppered with all the different wardrobes for every personality, and all the toothbrushes. There's twenty three right. of them throughout so so here's the thing though with that right mm-hmm. okay so in character development which is what this movie basically for the second act is is sort of coming to understand why kevin wendell crumb is this in the state that he is mm-hmm. two things play out ethos and pathos so ethos is essentially the characteristic or a spirit of a culture um, manifested through like beliefs or aspirations right so like the effect of your surroundings and what it does to you because of it, right? That's ethos. Pathos is the sympathy we, pr- we the sympathy given to someone. Okay, man. So the ethos in this is twenty four times deep, and you start to, despite the fact that this is really a terrible person, mm-hmm. kind of find pathos mostly for Hedwig, mm-hmm. and this is supposed to be a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. I- I mean, there's lots of like mass serial killers that we like, mm-hmm. but hard to find a lot of ethos or well pathos mm-hmm. and like Jason Voorhees or mm-hmm. Michael Myers. We love those characters, but in this movie, mm-hmm. so he's taken the time to think this through. And how do these manifestations of ethos provide a sympathetic character that we're almost pulling for Hedwig? Mm-hmm. And then, okay, so to take it one step further, okay, so now we're into full character development. Mm-hmm. To me, the most awkward sequence in that entire movie Mm -hmm. is Hedwig, who's stalled out. He's grown. I think he's a grown man, like Mm -hmm. 20, mid 20 ish to 30 ish. That character has stalled out at age nine and he's taken a shine to Cassie. 
which of course he has because she's pretty and available and there's a river of inappropriate with young women in that movie anyway with Dennis. Mm-hmm. So some maybe some effects also leak through <clears throat> with Hedwig. Mm-hmm. So he asks her, mm-hmm. have you ever kissed anybody? And she's like, no response. And he's like, I think I want to try it with you. And he rolls up on her as a grown man, mm-hmm. pretending to be, ni- or not pretending, manifesting itself as nine years old. Yep. And plants one on her that's not returned, just sort of taken in yeah. like this sort of statuesque thing, which also goes back to her issues and her uncle. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. It's it's grooming. It's and I, yeah, right. Yep. But delivered in a way where you're kind of like, oh, Hedwig. Mm-hmm. Well, both I, both I, characters, both both characters, Cassie and Kevin Wendell Crumb, their personalities have manifested to this current state. Because of abuse. Right. Abuse by obsessive compulsive disorder mother. Abuse by creepy get get the hell out of my face uncle who's been molesting you for 10 plus years. Like, and then like, I think through that, that seminal meeting, like it's, it's almost going back to beauty and the beast, the beast. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like what you see in King Kong. It's that, that, that yep. female presence that can then therefore tame that inner that inner beast and she's able to do that and then through that mutual understanding is what eventually spares her her life and you know you know going forward in glass that could be the component that you know is able to bring down that element okay so i think you hit on something important that i want to sort of echo in this in this moment mm-hmm. the roller coaster that is mns's career up and down mm-hmm. mostly filled with failures basically bottomed out in after earth mm-hmm a bit resurrected with devil. Although Not even bottom only... out. That's buried with, with freaking dinosaur bones at this point. Well, if you... <laughs> extinct? Yes. Okay. Fossilized extinction? Yep. Okay. So it's about as low as it can get. Got talked into a vanity project that was a terrible film. And mm-hmm. he had to have been untouchable. Yeah. Blumhouse resurrects it. Mm-hmm. After Devil, which there's a whole story about Devil and how the third film in the Night Chronicles, which was the first film in the Night Chronicles, was going to be Unbreakable 2. And, but whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So... And if... And if for, I don't want to spend time talking about that because you guys can can look into that yourself. But that's like kind of a, a seminal moment in the Unbreakable franchise. But this, maybe this idea is going to be resurrected. Mm-hmm. Okay, two and three never saw the light of day. And then Blumhouse comes <clears> along <throat> and brings him back to some... And again, I don't love the visit, but like for him, pretty solid entry. Yeah. Okay. With everything that we just said about these two characters, Kevin Wendell Crumb and Cassie, who have both been forged through the tragedy of abuse, Mm -hmm. this scene could come off really rough and uncomfortable and hard. And that wouldn't fit with the film. Mm -hmm. The term we like to use, on the nose. Okay. Where it's so blatantly obvious that it's essentially like walks up and tells it right to your eyes. And that's one possibility. And the other possibility Mm -hmm. is egregiously unwatchable Mm -hmm. because it's just so inappropriate. Yep. But... He handles it so deftly Mm -hmm. that it's not... I mean, look, I'm not going to tell you it's not Mm off-putting. But it's off-putting in a reasonable horror genre way. Mm -hmm. And a movie that started off, I think, as horror Mm -hmm. and has now moved into a character piece. And again, when he is right, Jesse, he is so in control of the story and the images that he wants the people on screen to see. Mm -hmm. This is that moment. Yep. Again, like that moment between the two of them, you're like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. this grown man is kissing this girl Mm -hmm. who's been molested 
and he's kissing her as a little boy mm-hmm. who he's trusting enough to go through this really awkward endeavor with. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know where you begin on the conflict in that, but I can tell you this. Mm-hmm. It is brilliant. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go. No, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right there. So, like, you know, the movie reaches the the fever pitch with the scene we talked about, like with like her looking up at the cop, um, saying, "I'm not going at, with, with back to back to uncle at this point." No, well, with with her eyes, <laughs> and the actress, she has some striking eyes. Let's just say that. Yeah. But um, yeah. it's 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 amazing the way it, you know it comes across, and when 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 filmmakers are on and they're able to evoke you know emotions and feelings and themes without saying a damn word of dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, there. Those are that's what separates to me the good movies from the bad ones. Right, and I have to call this a good movie. And then, no doubt. Yeah, exactly. And if we if we ended the movie right there, if it just fades to black, cuts to black, and we see the credits roll, which the credits in this movie are in twenty four boxes. Oh yeah, shown twenty four times. Yep. yep. To evoke the twenty four personalities of Kendall Wendell right. Crumb. Who cares about the way the credits are shown? Exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. I would have been fine if the movie ended here. Right. And then we get the, it, what, at least for the two of us and other people out there, it has to be the cherry on top with this anecdote, this like tacked on ending, which just adds even more depth and layer to, to the movie. Right. Yeah. I think part of the success of Split also, we've talked about mm-hmm. how brilliant McAvoy is with these multiple personalities. Part of the other success of this film has to be from Anya Taylor-Joy. Okay, I'm not sure if she'd done Witch yet. I think she'd already completed The Witch. Yeah, and that movie, for those who haven't seen it, is brilliant. Right. It's a brilliant indie horror film, you know, in New England times with those witch. Like, seek it out if you haven't seen it. Exactly, yes. A must-watch on your list. So, if you have, essentially, a single location film, mm-hmm. which is... Mostly what this is. There is not a lot of um, ancillary material to drive story. There's no set pieces. It's basically you're sequestered in the basement of whatever we don't know it is at this point, which eventually ends up being revealed as the zoo. Mm -hmm. And if that's going to work, you have to have really solid performances where the set pieces or the ancillary material comes from within the actor and mm-hmm. or actresses. Mm-hmm. And they both talked about yeah. McAvoy here mm-hmm. deliver. And so does she not in 24 personalities, mm-hmm. but in two, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like recovering from young Casey's molestation. Yep. Ugh. Right. Mm-hmm. And how that sort of played out among her friends in the school and like what that means to her, mm-hmm. but also in a way that gives her, a superior position to the other two girls that have been abducted with her. And insofar as we need to see what's going to happen before we make the decision to act because just going haphazardly yep. is going to lead to demise or whatever. I mean, I don't think exactly. she thinks demise, but yeah, maybe she does. Mm-hmm. And she even tells them that. Mm-hmm. Like early on in the film, the girls are trying to rally a plan. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we got to drop a bomb on this guy when he walks in. And that's when we see one of the manifestations of Kevin Wendell Crumb mm-hmm. as Miss Patricia. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, maybe that woman will help us. Yep. A-line skirt that's like um, ankle length, <laughs> yeah. red turtleneck. And, yes. And to me, I'm going to get back to what I'm saying here. Yeah. To me, it's very similar. It's almost laughably uncomfortable, much the same way, back to Hitchcock, that Anthony Perkins is revealed as mother in the basement yep. 
of Psycho. Exactly. Because like when he shows up yep. and knocks the light with that knife in his hand and that crazy, almost Joker-like smile, completely enthralled with his own... <laughs> and as the viewer, you're like, what the and hell? It, it yeah. is kind of... But, and, and truthfully... There's nothing funny about that. No. If that's in your real life, yeah. you're not laughing. No way. You're shrieking. Yep. Right? But in, on screen, we almost laugh because the tension has to be relieved in some way. This is the same thing, Jesse. Yeah. The reveal of this this man dressed as this high priestess spinster. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. And the girl's a, a step back, mouths hanging. And so... They're not getting any rescue there. Mm-hmm. And then we continue kind of along with the discussion, which is Anya Taylor-Joy mm-hmm. saying, when I hear something from the one of either of you two that sounds like a reasonable plan, I'll let you know. Yeah. Until then, I've got nothing to say. Because she's thinking. Exactly. Ugh. I like Come how you, on, man. I, yeah, I like, I like how you brought up comedy, too. Because as we've talked about on many occasion, how intricately linked comedy and horror is. Yeah. And the and the release the the release of tension and you know you know you know laughter and the jump scare is is done the same way you know what I mean. So then uh, then we will look at uh, the ratings of this film. But before before we do so, I want to give you two final anecdotes yeah, that I discovered while kind of looking into this movie. And the first is uh, the flower in the bathroom. You know, this it's it's actually a, a proteo pincushion. Yeah, yeah, and it's named after the Greek god Proteus. And in Greek mythology, Greek mythology nerds out there, <laughs> uh, Proteus had the ability to change his shape and form at will. Which I'm sure our intellectual listeners, of course, they're all that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's cool. Really, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. That's great. Exactly. And then one final anecdote for the comic nerds out there. So how serendipitous. So James McAvoy also plays uh, Charles Xavier in the X-Men prequel trilogy. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the comics, Professor X has a son, uh, David Heller, Legion. So Legion is a mutant with dissociative identity disorder, multiple personalities. Oh my goodness. So (laughs) how just like the universe just connecting on all levels at this point. So, you know, it's kind of interesting too, Jesse, that you brought that up is, okay, so two films into the Israel 177 trilogy, mm-hmm. what we've been exposed to is two key characters in a superhero franchise that essentially, I don't know if it's maybe origin story, but it's inter- introductory story, right? Yeah. And one of them is received with great admiration Mm -hmm. split yeah and one of them with a bit more tepid response Mm -hmm. and they've both been presented in a way that seems like no part of this has anything to do with comic books or superheroes exactly i just it it's never it's never less shocking to me with the ending of these movies that he can give you as many clues as he does to get there Mm -hmm. literally unbreakable opens with the scrawl over, I think, navy blue about the comic book reader. Mm-hmm. Right? How many comics are sold? How, many, how much time of their life is spent reading them? This one sold for this amount of how money. Many, right? Yep. And this other thing, too, <clears throat> is 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 done in such a way where you have no... Like, this is just going to be a one-off standalone film. And what's cool about it mm-hmm. is the bad guy, I guess, gets away. Mm-hmm. Until yep. the bad guy gets away, only to be revealed that the bad guy is part of this much larger universe. Yeah comic book philadelphia Mm -hmm. 
And they're both done so subtly. Mm-hmm. Which gets me to one final thought that I want to get out before you know, we move to the grades. Yep. You know, we talked earlier about Shemilan's greatest gift and greatest curse is the ending of the sixth sense. Yep. That that ending has been bastardized and used and parodied, yes. Because it's so good. Yep. Yeah. No one parodies the end of Hangover Three. <laughs> exactly. Or Alien. No, yeah. No one's parodying the no, end of yeah. those, right? Yeah. Okay, so because it's it's so shocking. Yeah. Okay. I almost feel and we talked about this in the previous podcast too, like the position that that ascended him to in Hollywood was Orson Welles like this is his rosebud Mm -hmm. and if you follow Orson Welles's career it's mostly missteps to the point where he's basically run out of LA and ends up having to go make movies in Germany yeah before he comes back with like a film noir of all things there's a brilliant line in the film super bad where Jonah Hill's talking about like him like getting with getting with girls and he's like he's like it was too early in my like girl getting career he's like (laughs) he's like I honestly understand why Orson Welles ate his fat ass to death right it's this, right. what we're talking about. I mean, so think about this. Two films in, <clears throat> right? The one, there's a movie that he made before The Sixth Sense. We, don't, this. we don't count that. No, but like you do see like the early influence of him in that, and it has to do with religion. Yeah, but okay. thematically, if he enters this supernatural realm, it begins with The Sixth Sense. Okay, fair. Yeah. So two films in, we're already making comparisons to Hitchcock. Yeah. And, and good Orson Welles, which right. is number, like... Orson Welles per Citizen Kane. Yeah. Number one on a lot of lists. And we can have that debate. But, like, it's up there, right? Yeah, yeah. Because of Rosebud. Mm-hmm. And then you realize, like, Rosebud's a sled, which really isn't that impactful. But when you think about what the sled means to the kid. Yeah. It's, it's huge. Moving. How do you possibly. You can't. Live up to you that. You can't. There's, he, there's, no. There's no way. Right. It's his curse. Yeah. So then he comes out with Unbreakable, which mm-hmm. there is no question. Like. To the day I die, I will defend what I'm about to say here. Yeah. It is his seminal masterpiece. Mm-hmm. To me, yeah. and I will defend it. I know it's not as high on your list. Yeah. It is an absolute masterpiece in film. Mm-hmm. And it gets killed. Mm-hmm. Right? Matter of fact, they pull the plug on what's going to be a trilogy because it doesn't perform as well as they want at the box office. Yeah. Which sends him into a whole dark period in his life anyway. <laughs> How do you come back from... The Sixth Sense yeah. has a really good ending. Yeah. Unbreakable is actually smarter and is a film better. Yes. But maybe the ending didn't deliver what the audience wanted because, in fact, Mr. Glass was Mr. Glass and not a ghost. And I can't argue with the title cards that come up the end of the movie that sort of say, you know, this is the end of our story with, like, with writing. Well, I'll give it to you this. If there weren't for those title cards, I don't think I would ever hope for a sequel. Okay, fair. You know what I mean? Right. Like those title, those two title cards, David Dunn-led authorities where multiple acts of terrorism were discovered. And, and Mr. Elijah Price is now an institution for the criminally insane. That actually gave me hope that like, I think maybe there's more to this story like down the line. Everyone thought that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you take those two things <clears throat> and then now you have to... You have to do at least that or better going forward. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? No, it's a losing effort. It's a losing effort. And that he's only a victim of his own success in that. Yeah. Okay, so when we get to the end of Split compared to Happening, or, you know, I think sort of unfairly criticized, mm-hmm. not by any means my top 50 movies, but The Village actually is a pretty smart ending mm-hmm. to why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Right? And, and we could go on and on. 
you've created the unascendable mountain. Yeah. You can't ever climb it because every step is going to be met with the boulder of the expectation of the sixth sense. How do you climb over that, Jesse? No, no. I'll, and I'll give you the sports equivalent because we've been talking about sports all this episode. Yeah, for sure. This is the undefeated football team going 18-0 and and losing the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Right. You lost. You were good, all that, but you lost You lost the big one. And everyone remembers that. So what is like, that? The 20-whatever Patriots that lose yeah, on a the, helmet catch to the Giants? Yeah, 2007 Patri- Patriots. The perfect perfect season, they, yeah, ended in the last game. That's what that's what this is. Like, it's, yeah. By the way, I swear to God, that ball hit the ground, too, but that's another story. I don't think it did. Okay, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so here you have two character studies, essentially. Yeah. One disguised as a mm-hmm. rot family drama, as you so, so subtly or so aptly said. Yeah. This one disguised as a horror slash psychological thriller that both hinge on this idea. In both cases, the main characters, Kevin Wendell Crumb, Bruce Willis, and even Sam Sam Jackson, Mm -hmm. Mr. Glass Mm -hmm. and Unbreakable, are trying to rationalize existences and circumstances. And in fact, what they're rationalizing is fate. Why am I here in this position? Yep. What happened to make me 27, 24 personalities? What happened to make me with bones that bones that are so brittle? Mm-hmm. What happened to make me like every one of them is asking this question, yes. right? Yes. And the answer isn't, in fact, it's any particular circumstance. Could it just be you're unlucky? Yep. And that is so well handled mm-hmm. and delivered. In both of these two films. In both of those films, and I would say in at least annual Marvel and DC, that's the birth of all their characters. I'm unlucky enough to be bitten by a spider. I'm unlucky enough to walk down an alley and have my parents murdered. You know what I mean? Jesse, if half the population disappears on that, you pray to God you're in the good half. Exactly. And you know what? It's not because you're better. Mm -hmm. It's just freaking fate. Yes. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And we'd drop the mic, but then we'd break we'd break this mic and we couldn't do this anymore. <laughs> right. So with that, like we'll go right into into the ratings. Matt, how would you rate Split? I think the uniqueness the I'm sorry, the uniqueness of this movie is not lost on me by any means. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, like you could say, well, it sounds like we're talking about top shelf. I'm not gonna give it top shelf, because my top shelf, there's like seven films up there. Yeah. Okay. I want to save that for like the truly moving moments. And Split didn't move me, but it was really good. But it was really good in an original way that I didn't see coming. And I think that there is a very definite skill to pull that off. If you take away the end, I still really like that movie. Yeah, I'm left with like, wow, mm-hmm. the bad guy got away. Mm-hmm. And this is a really interesting piece. And I'm probably telling you there needs to be some follow-up. Mm-hmm. to the Anya Taylor Joy character for like what next exactly because she's also really good yep okay so I'm obviously then angling for single barrel yep okay single barrel for me super original um in what was you know kind of a formulaic horror company that kind of did less than 15 million dollar horror movies yeah yada 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 and mm-hmm. that's not it that that's not it's not a horror movie mm-hmm it's just not, it despite the tenets yep. that we went over earlier that are pure horror. Yeah. Single barrel. Excellent. Okay. So then I have to, you know, so I hadn't seen this. So I saw it in the theater when it came out, and then I I watched it again last night, literally. <laughs> and, you know, I was, 
all these subtle themes and brilliance were just like they were just clicking with me yeah and it was just like it was just like it was like Shyamalan like you know like uh, clicking on all cylinders and there wasn't like anything like really hampering it other than like the whole psychiatrist bit which if you take that out of this whole movie not only do you save like probably 20 to 30 minutes of the runtime um i think cleans it up pretty well and i think you have the same movie still okay and then you have single location which talk about claustrophobia and all the things we'd be feeling at that point right not leaving that those 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 rooms in that hallway your horror tenant based exactly on the thing right yes i think the, you know you know for Shyamalan, this is uh this is just like it's so refreshing because like yes. deep down i knew like I knew he had it in he him. He had it in him. <laughs> he had it in him this right. whole time. Yes. And he just needed to get back to these these basics. And I mentioned that last week. And, you know, when I was watching it again, I was just like, man, th- th- this is brilliant. Brilliant performances. The cinematography. Is, this is best shot movie, I think. I, it's better than Unbreakable. I love the long takes in Unbreakable, but the use of depth of field and hit the color, that yellow burnt orange in the hallway, in the basement, like, and the, the, the on the, it's amazing. It's, it's just so eloquent. And, For everybody um, out there too, if you like that kind of POV that he's showing, point of view, like look into Dutch cinema because mm-hmm. it clearly is is influenced by that. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then between the performances and that, I I have to I, I'm gonna I'm gonna fall in the single barrel as well. Okay. And not only that, this is Shyamalan's second best film that he's ever made. And yes, it's shocking to say that because the Sixth Sense is brilliant, Unbreakable is amazing, and I uh, and I think I think Signs is is kind of criminally underrated. It's not as good as Unbreakable. That's a good film too with Mel Gibson before he like totally went off the deep end. Right. Um, I have to go single barrel, and you know it's like the, it's almost like the exact Unbreakable and Split are on two opposite ends of the spectrum with one that's super high concept and uh super expensive yeah. 75 million right this one with a pretty simple idea 9 million and this one's a success this one's a failure but then they're tied together and they meet in the middle for what we're gonna see and review in the coming days glass so not to give anything away to the uh, listeners yeah but we have to make an admission to you guys right now mm-hmm. like jesse and i did go see glass last night mm-hmm. and boy we have a lot to talk about yeah but that being said, we'll probably record that in a couple days and get that out to you all soon. Yeah. But we're purposely delaying that review a little bit to give you all a chance to see it before we, you know, destroy the spoilers for you. Mm-hmm. I hate that. And yeah. that's the even though that there's the disclaimer before the podcast starts, there's spoilers. Yeah. yeah. We're going to decode that movie in a way that's going to ruin it. So I don't want to mm-hmm. do that. It's ruin it as far as the spoilers. Yeah. So you guys have got a couple days to see, and gals, I hope too. Mm-hmm. Got a couple days to see. Um, glass mm-hmm. before we roll that out but um i so i think we're both single barrel on this one yeah, yeah. it's a it's a good film it's a good film and good it, original film yeah and if that ending wasn't in there it's still amazing yes still amazing yep so before we wrap up for today and and, and leave you until next week um want to end with the nightcap and again this is a question coming from me that i'm proposing to matt you know talking about sequels you know we're getting glass and we talked about last week how like it's amazing that we're even at this moment it's it's like it's, yes it is it's that marathon and we were there and we saw it and like at least we have that at right. least it happened and we can we don't have to talk about it anymore because like it happened um right so what's another sequel that you never received that you wish you did whether it was you know it was a sequel that was made that wasn't what you were hoping for 
um, which you kind of mentioned in Hangover 2, but maybe a sequel that was just, it never, it never happened. So this is going to be an odd answer for me. Okay. Okay, so I do think one of the things that applies to my preference for Unbreakable is my beliefs and my core set of values as a member of Gen X. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was thinking about this a lot because we sort of talked about this Mm -hmm. off off mic. What if I told you the sequel that I wanted Mm -hmm. that we'll never get Mm -hmm. is the sequel to Singles? Okay. And the reason I'm going to say that is at some point, all us Gen Xers grew up and recognized that Friends probably wasn't a sustainable way to make a living and then had children. And I think, again, talk about careers that have gone off the rails that were promising once upon a time. We're talking about Cameron Crowe now, right? So Captain Gen X and the, I know a lot of people say Reality Bites. I think that movie's trash. Mm -hmm. But Singles is brilliant Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. What happens, I don't know, Singles is what, or Mm mid-90s? 20 years later when Matt Damon and Bridget Fonda and, and but by the way all those people in that movie are super gettable yeah right yeah. it's not like their schedule's so heavy with shooting that they can't find a way to carve out 10 weeks exactly what happens with them growing up and here's my here's my idea mm-hmm. a comedic element with those singles grown up having birthed millennials yep oh my god that's Justin, good <laughs> that's... we're talking about brilliant that film writes comedy. itself it writes itself. By the way, that's our idea. It's patented. Don't yeah. take it. Don't, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what. That, that's the sequel. I, actually, that, today, right now, that's what I want. That would actually probably be, you know, on paper, pretty good. Yeah. Execution, like, that's a whole other story of it, filmmaking. Well, yeah, no. yeah. But I, I can buy that. Okay. So m- mine's another one. So you got to go back to the 1980s for this one. And I'm, I'm almost shocked like that it never happened. Like, and we got to talk about right now, like this year we're getting Top Gun 2 Maverick. Sweet. Yeah. Or and, not. And next year. Are they going to play volleyball? I I hope so. <laughs> well, Kenny Loggins record the he, score? He, that, that's a necessity. <laughs> and next year, we just found this out this week. Right. We're getting Ghostbusters 3 that picks up where Ghostbusters 2 left off. Like, okay, by so, Reitman's son. Jason Reitman, exactly. Right. So I'm so shocked that they never had this because like, it's like so built in like how you could do a sequel. It's Goonies 2. Oh, like, yeah. How do you not pick up... 20 years later oh yeah with josh brolin sean astin and all those characters and seeing like what are they doing next but like going on one other goony adventure whether for treasure or this or that and man, like it's just like it's yeah. it's it's there it's there and like i don't know if it'll ever ha- it probably won't happen because i know some of those actors have retired from acting and it would probably take an act of God for get them to come back, but like Nick Fury, Sam Jackson, I've retired from acting until the price tag is right. Yeah, or like bro, really I don't know, but like you know, the, the actor that played Chunk, I know he's a, a defense lawyer in Los Angeles right now. So God, let's let him be that in the movie. He wouldn't even have to act. Exactly. So, but oh, I love it. That was that was one to me that like you know there's there's more to that story and you know we got gremlins one and gremlins two we got fright night one and you know yeah. we got sequels to all these other ones like why never we did we never get one to the you know richard donner spiel like you could get all these guys back and like that could be kind of fun nostalgic at least okay i love it and I yet, think, yeah and, and i love then, it yeah, chunk and sloth like what are those guys like like he lived with him apparently for the next 25 years like 
How did that happen? Like, okay. Exactly. So, yeah, I think both those are slam dunks. Yeah. They did make a Nintendo NES game called Goonies 2. And I don't know what the hell that game was about because I never played it, but that's not what I'm talking about here. No, it's not. This could have been a, a, a home run. I think so, too. Yeah. So I think that wraps it up for this week's episode of Split. Um, you know, as Matt reiterated, please go out and see Glass because we are going to talk about it in all its entirety. And he's right. There's a lot to discuss with this film. And uh, we want you to all be a part of that discussion. But until next week, you know, raise one up, Matt. Cheers. Cheers, Jesse. And uh, we'll see you next week with the review of Glass. Cheers to all you. Everybody have a great week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. Split is property of Blinding Edge Pictures, Bloomhouse Productions, and Universal Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Jay, what health-conscious fast food purveyor did you originally solicit to buy these chicken wings you've so lovingly reheated in a minor suicidal gesture? Hooters, and you can't just throw them out, Dr. Fletcher. Oh, this is wrong on so many levels.